When I was a teenager, the church that, that uh, I attended then was uh, about uh, a couple of miles from where, from where we lived. And uh, because there were no bus services, I had to walk. And teenage boys, of course, not particularly keen on walking. Well, I certainly wasn't. And um, but something changed, you know. I suddenly had a desire to walk to church. In fact, I even took a slightly longer route to church than I used to take. And that wasn't because I suddenly got a desire to walk. It was simply because there was a girl who lived in the road (laughs) on the way to church. And so I used to delight in initially walking up her road just to see if I could see her and then eventually... uh, uh, Eventually, then, she sometimes used to walk to church with me, and that made it all a very pleasurable experience. And, yeah, Kim wanted to know if it was her, and I said it was, so she's, <laughs> so, so, it's okay. You see, the truth is, we, we easily do the things, more easily do the things that we enjoy, don't we? If we enjoy doing something, it's much easier to do than, than if we don't enjoy it. So, for instance... On cold, on a cold, I'm not known for getting up early in the morning. You'll probably think I'm a very lazy so-and-so by the time I finish this talk. But I'm not known for getting up particularly early in the morning. But on a cold winter's morning, it is possible that you will find me getting out of bed at an unearthly hour and going out and standing and sitting on a cold, wet riverbank. That's because I enjoy fishing. And I enjoy fishing enough that I will actually do something that I don't enjoy, that's getting out of a a lovely warm bed onto a cold morning and and going and getting all the stuff sorted and and going out. I do it because, I know this is very strange to most of you, I do it because I enjoy it and I gain pleasure from it. So that's why we do it. It doesn't mean that sometimes the things that we enjoy we still don't have to put some effort into. So, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, Kim and I were camping at Keswick and... um, our tent looked straight out. It felt as if we could touch it, Stanley and David and Glynis. Our tent looked straight out on Grisdale Pike and the mountains around there. And, of course, they are mountains at Keswick. They're not just little hills. And we looked at Grisdale. And so we said, let's climb up Grisdale. You know, it doesn't look too bad. And uh, we can then walk along and go over that mountain and that mountain and come back around the, the Horseshoe. It's one of the popular walks. And uh, we did it after the, after about 15 minutes after starting climbing Grisdale Pike, we wondered what on earth we were doing. It was so, it was so steep. And we thought, flip, maybe we've only just started. We've got all this, you know, 3,000, 2,500 feet to climb or whatever it is. And, uh, but we kept going because we enjoyed it. We enjoyed the whole, pros- the whole thing about being out there on a lovely summer's, summer's day climbing a mountain. So if we don't enjoy something... We might do it if it's absolutely essential, is one of the reasons. So, for instance, when my tooth, when I was eating some lovely pork crackling just a few weeks back, unfortunately, this crackling was so tough, I blame my wife for this, it it cracked a filling in a wisdom tooth, completely cracked it, and so I had a big, big hole in this big tooth, and I had to go to the dentist. I don't enjoy going to the dentist, I'm not that stupid, and, uh, but I had to go because it was absolutely essential. I couldn't carry on with this great big hole in this big tooth at the back of my mouth. So that's one reason. Or if something is really important and, we get a, and there's a value in it, then yes, we may learn 
and there's lots of things that this applies to, that we might learn to do it out of a sense of duty. Or, alternatively, if we don't enjoy something and it's not important and it's not absolutely essential, then we don't do it at all. A well-known bishop of a previous generation said, I've come to the conclusion that the vast majority of professing Christians do not pray at all. Quite a striking statement, isn't it? The vast majority of professing Christians, people who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't actually pray at all. Well, you see, well, people will pray if it's absolutely essential. So even, the, even someone who's a, you know, who's a, who says they're a convinced atheist may, when, when things get really bad, they might pray. My brother was on an Outward Bound course doing some, a very serious Outward Bound course many years ago, in, which included mountain climbing with ropes and whatever else. He got to know a, a young lady there and was talking to her and she had absolutely no interest in the Christian faith. She said, I'm an atheist, I don't want to know any of that, just keep it to yourself, that's fine. Until they were climbing one day and she, he was next on the rope to her. And she froze, not physically, not because of the cold, but she, she froze on the mountainside. She wouldn't move, she just, she just was clinging. And that was it, she didn't want to go. And Peter, because he was the next in line, had to climb up to her. And she said, she said, I, 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 can't, I can't move. I, can't, I just don't know what to do. And then she said, will you pray for me? So people even, if, when it's absolutely essential, people even if they're not sure there is a God, there are many people who will pray. There's many people who pray also because they realize that God has told them to and they do it out of a sense of duty. But how much better it would be if we enjoyed praying how much more wonderful it would be, how much easier we'd find it to pray if there was a joy in it. And that's the subject for today. Now, when we talk about prayer, when we talk about Christians not praying, the reality is, if you're anything like me, and you may not be, praise God, but if you are, the reality is that we can easily feel very guilty, can't we? Because we, we know we should pray. The Bible teaches us to pray. Jesus said to pray. We've heard about all these stories about people who get up at the crack of dawn and they spend two hours on their knees and those people who see tremendous answers to prayer and then we think about our own experience and it seems so poor. We find it hard to pray. We find it hard to even get started. We can't concentrate for more than a few seconds and all those difficulties. And we can feel very guilty about it. Here's something you need, we need to understand. One, and this is this, that God does not want us to be, feel guilty about that. Because guilt is not a good thing. God does not want us to feel guilty. What he does want us to begin to learn or to learn more about the joy of prayer. That's what he really wants. And that's what we're going to talk about now for a few minutes. So let's just briefly think about how we see prayer. We should say, and I've gone and left the book on your, book sh- on your table, David, so I'll, but I'll mention it anyway. We should realize that, first of all, our personalities affect the way we pray. Sometimes we think we've got to be a certain way. Well, the truth is every one of us is different. We've got different temperaments, different personalities. The way we relate to people, the way we relate to God will be different, in a sense, for each one of us. So don't think that each prayer has to just be like this. And if that doesn't fit you, then there's something terribly wrong. It may just be that you need to learn to pray 
and experience God in a different way and experience prayer in a different way. We also have to realize that our experiences, what we've done in the past, what people have done to us, particularly our relationship with our earthly father, particularly those relationships in our early years, all of those things will affect the way that we see God and the way that we think about God and the way that we pray. And that's what the book Prayer Life by Pablo Martinez is about. And if you haven't read it and, you're, and you struggle with prayer and you're not, it just doesn't seem to fit at all, I'll leave the book with um, David and Glynis. It'll be one less book to pack. And uh, you, can, you can borrow it from them. But it's a good book. Pablo Martinez is a great guy. I've heard him speak. A very humble guy. But he deals with some of those fundamental issues, why we struggle with prayer and, uh, and how then we can begin to, to work through some of those. So I'm not going to say any more about that at all. But another thing is, is just how that is, causes difficulties in our prayer, related to that in a sense, is just how... Sorry, I'm, I said to Phil, I, need, I, uh, I always get this problem when I'm... I guess it's nerves. My lips start to seal. I'm sure, sure, I'm sure some of you would actually um, want that to happen, so I'd have to shut up, but um, I'll have a drink and keep going. But yeah... Another thing is just how we see God. And in a sense, uh, someone said, the way, if, if you show me someone praying, I will tell you what they think about God. Because the way we pray reflects what we think about God. And qu- conversely, therefore, the way that we think about God affects the way it determines, to some extent, how we pray. So, here's some images of God, right, that people have. That God is a sort of Santa Claus, right? He's someone that you come to and uh, you put in your requests, and uh, if you've been, if you've been re- reasonably good, then, then you hope God will answer those prayers. And um, that's one view that people have of God. Another is that, uh, conversely, that God is a stern headmaster. That God tells you things that you should do, and that he's to be obeyed, right, and to be followed, and therefore often you feel guilty because the truth is that you don't do all what you think He's telling you to do. You never can. And so you're very often disappointed, frustrated, and you certainly have no relationship with him. Or you see God as the ruler of the universe. God is great, and he is the ruler of the universe. So God rules over everything. And therefore, he's got so much to do, hasn't he? I mean, he's got the whole cosmos to keep going, and he's got everything and all the big problems in the world, and God's really interested in church. Is he really interested in me? So when I pray and I can't see him, of course, is he listening? Is he there? Or maybe you just see him as, or it as an impersonal force of the Star Wars variety. May the force be with you. And if only you could harness the power of the force, then things would happen. There's no relationship because it's just a power, just a force. So how should we see God? And how should we pray to him? Glynis, I think, is going to come and read a very well-known passage from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks to his disciples about what prayer should be, can be. It's taken from Matthew chapter 6 in the Church Bible. It's on page 970. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. 
for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Thank you, Glynis. Words that you uh, that we all know well, and uh, so first of all, Jesus says, "Look, when we talk about prayer, there's a couple of things that prayer is not to his disciples, and therefore to us." He says, "Prayer is not is not trying to to make an impression with other people. It's not about it's not a performance. It's not that at all." You know, it's, those Pharisees, those religious people, they love to pray and they pray wonderful prayers, I'm sure. But that's, that's not what prayer is about. And neither is prayer, neither is prayer some religious ritual where you have to somehow, somehow do certain things to get God to listen to you and to get God to respond. It's not like that either. You know, I, my, so people, people do that, don't they? Sometimes, well... I do, we do. We, we, we go on repeating things to God. There are certain things that we do need to persevere in prayer about, but sometimes we do just go on repeating things. My, and, it, and it's true of most religions. So at home, well, not at home anymore, but in my home where I grew up, sitting, my brother used to travel around the world, and he always brought back these ridiculous, useless artifacts, you know, and I could give you a whole list of them. But one of them he brought back was a Tibetan prayer wheel. Now, a Tibetan prayer wheel is nice, a, a cylinder with, with semi-precious, well, actually not really precious at all, stones on the outside, because if it was precious, my brother would never have bought it and given it to us. But uh, on this, this cylinder, and it's, which you could take the lid off, and it got a handle underneath as well, and inside you wrote your prayer, whatever it was. And the cylinder got a little uh, weight on the outside, so a bit, a bit like a football rattle in one sense, you could do this, and the cylinder would turn. And every time the cylinder turned, the prayer was said. So you can imagine that on your walk to work, you could say your prayer to God hundreds, nay, maybe thousands of times. And the more you said it, the more likely God was to answer. And Jesus said, no, it's not like that at all. Do you know your, God, your Father actually knows exactly what you're thinking, what your needs are, before you even express them in words? He knows you don't need to tell him in that sense. He knows. Prayer is not like that. But what is prayer then? Well, the overwhelming thing from this passage to me is that prayer is about a relationship with the Father. 
And that really is the joy and the, from which we get the joyful habit. The joy of prayer is all about a relationship with the Father. We know Jesus talks through the Gospels about his Father. In John's Gospel alone, he mentions his Father 122 times. I haven't counted them, but that's what the, that's what the dictionary said. He talked about his Father. And he used the word, didn't he? Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. Word for like daddy, father. It's the word that a child would use to their, fa- to their father, to their parent. It's a word of intimacy. And that's how Jesus spoke about God, which itself was revolutionary and caused all sorts of upsets with those religious leaders. Didn't like that at all. But even more radical, even more amazing here, Jesus says to his disciples, right at the outset of his ministry, and, and in other places too, that they, they... Sinful, rebellious people, they also are to call God Abba, Father. That's revolutionary. They'd not, they wouldn't have known that or thought that or come across that before. But he says, you can call him, yes, the ruler of the universe. You can call him Father. You can call him Dad. You can have that intimate relationship with him. So in those first few verses we read, as Glynis read to us, go into your room and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father will reward you. goes on, your father knows what you need before you ask him. You should pray our father in heaven. You can't get away from it, can you? But the essence here of prayer is about the relationship that we can have with our father in heaven. And the good news is, That's what the Bible teaches, that we, I, sinful, rebellious people who make so many mistakes and mess up in so many ways can actually know God through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in who he is and what he's done. We can know him and we can come to know him as our father. And it's all because of what he's done. And that's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? And that's why prayer can become a joy if only we can change some of the strange images that we've had of God, perhaps for all sorts of reasons, and begin to see him as our father, a father who loves us and cares for us, that will change, begin to change perhaps, the way that we think about praying and what it means. And that's really important. I am a father. I've got two sons and a daughter. They are my children, I have to confess. At times, I wish they weren't. At times, they do things, I'm sure they'd say the same about me, they do things that I wish they wouldn't do, They make mistakes and all the rest of it. They disappoint at times. They make choices that I think are bad choices. And sometimes they have to face the consequences. And uh, my wife always tries to, of course, mitigate these consequences and sort of bail them out. And I'm, as the father, saying, no, they've got to suffer. You know, they've got to learn and whatever else. That's that's moms and dads, basically, isn't it? And, um, but that's it. They are my children. And the truth is, the truth is they are my children. They will remain my children, whatever they do. I will love them. I might find that hard at times, but I will love them because they are my children. And nothing can change that. Nothing should change that. I am also a son. I have a father, an earthly father. I did. He's passed away a few years ago now, but I had a dad. Among my siblings, there were two who were adopted. I was natural born, right, but they were only adopted. No, but the reality was that once adopted, we were treated in every way the same. 
I never saw any difference in my family between those of us who were naturally born, if you like, and those that were adopted. My parents treated us all the same. They loved us the same. And they, t- and I, and they said, I mean, when, when my, one of them was badly behaved, they said to, they said to him, however badly behave, you behaved you are, you're not going back. We've adopted you. It is for good. We don't always like the way you behave, but you're here and you will stay, and we will love you as our child. Nothing will change it. And that's how it is, isn't it, with us and, 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 and our Father in heaven, that he has adopted us. We may at times really disappoint, but that doesn't change the fact that he loves us. And it doesn't mean that he's going to cancel those adoption papers. We are like his son. We are brought into that same relationship. My dad, and we, yeah, and we're told to, just reading these verses from Galatians, it says, we, and, he, and he understands what we're like, right? I know what my children are like to some extent. My dad knew what I was like to some extent. Our Heavenly Father knows what we're like absolutely. There's nothing hidden, right? Absolutely nothing hidden from him. He knows us through and through. And yet, the Bible says he's able to understand and sympathize. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, this is it, and this is what we need to get into our heart, this is what we need to take hold of, and I need to take hold of. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find help in our t- and grace in our time of need. Find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what he wants. He may see the things that we've done and, he may, and that may disappoint him, but it doesn't change anything. My heavenly father knows me better than my earthly father. And I am loved. I am loved. I don't deserve it, and I know that more than anybody. You don't deserve it. But you're loved. You're loved. And he doesn't want you to, to sit there in the background frustrated about not being out, why, why are things not working out, why don't I pray? Why? He wants you just to be real with him. He wants us to be real with him and to come to him as we are. And we are accepted and loved. Do you remember the parable of those two men who went into the temple to pray? There was the good religious man, wasn't there? Who thanked God that he was so good. And thank God that he was so much better than this guy standing next to him who was a cheating tax collector. And the religious guy gives out his thanks to God. And then the guy next to him. Do you know, just in point, this came to me as I was thinking about this. We were talking, and Kim and I mentioned it the other day. As I get older and wiser, I see more of other people's weaknesses. Do you you find that? (laughs) I do. I'm I'm very good at picking out people's weaknesses. But the truth also is that more than often, often than not, those same weaknesses are a reflection of myself, of something in me. This religious guy, who's great at seeing other people's weaknesses, and that's where it stopped. The cheating tax collector could only see himself what he was. And he simply said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. No long prayer. No great words. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus shocked, of course, all those listeners, didn't he? 
all those people listening. Because he said, which, which prayer do you think God heard? Who do you think God was listening to? He said, well, actually, it was that cheating tax collector that went home right with God. He's the one that went home right with God. The other guy, done about him. And that's, that's our father. And if we come to him, seeing him as our father, and, 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 and trying to, and, and correcting some of those other wrong images that we have, and there's many others that we could have mentioned, which we've acquired for all sorts of reasons, we will begin to discover a joy in prayer. And something amazing can start to happen. Now, I was going to, I've said a lot more on that than I was going to, so I'm going to miss out. I was going to go through very quickly and look at the Lord's Prayer because there are other joys that we can see within it. But I'm going to basically stop there in terms of, because that is the essence of it. Prayer will be the, if we, if we can understand that we are loved by him, known by him and still loved by him, and that like all parents, he desires to have a relationship with us. He wants us, you know, sometimes you go and pray, I'm sure you share this experience, you go and pray, and you think, well, who on earth am I praying to? Am I just talking to myself? There's no, there's no one else here in this room. You know, and sometimes we even think, is there a God? Is there, is there someone, I don't know, perhaps that's just me, I hope that's not you, but I guess it is at times. And yet he just wants to have that. Do you know, even as parents, we're just so pleased, aren't we, as our little kids grow into bigger kids. We're just so pleased at the times when they say that they're just happy to be with us. They just want to be with us. It doesn't matter too much what they say, what they talk about. And that's what our Father in Heaven wants. He just wants us to be real with Him and for us to have a, a better understanding of who He is. He just wants us to be with Him. And from that, prayer as an expression can grow. Prayer is a discipline. It is a duty. It will at times be difficult because there's all sorts of other things going on here. There's an enemy who's determined to stop us praying. There's an, er an enemy who's determined to whisper and to feed those images into our head that tells us that prayer is an absolute waste of time, that there's no one listening, there's no God, that nothing will change. And there's, there's, my, there's my rebellious internal ways as well, of wanting to go my own way, of wanting to have control of my life, of wanting to make the decisions to call the shots. All of these things are going on, so at times it will need to be a discipline. But it's meant to be so much more than a discipline, so much more than a, a duty. God wants it to be a joy. And the amazing thing is, is that as we discover that, we discover that, yeah, prayer does change things. We could talk about wonderful prayers and, and wonderful things that have happened in response to prayer. I'm sure each, each of us can, I could think of one or two of those. But the amazing thing is that through prayer, God changes us. We want it to change our circumstances. I want him to sell my house. But the important thing is God wants to change me. That's far more important than selling the house. The changed me will live forever. Be part of that kingdom on earth that Jesus talked about in the Lord's Prayer that he wants us to be a part of. When that, have we any idea what that kingdom is going to be like? And he wants us to be part of that and the bringing of that and the coming together of that. He wants us to know him as our Father. May we all do that. A little more. So when to do just what Jesus said in there. Put it into practice. He just said, no show, 
Just go into a room. Be real with me. Talk to me. Realize who you're talking to and that it is I, your Father, who loves you, welcomes you, and is listening to you, and is pleased that you're there, even if your words don't make sense. I'm pleased that you're there. And through that process, Jesus begins that changing within us.